All right, would you all pray with me? Father God, we thank you for letting us be back together in one place to worship you in the name of the Son and in the power of the Holy Spirit. Lord, we are grateful. And um, it would be um, weird of us, Lord, not to, uh, not to see another major hit to, uh, to this culture, to this country, um, and the riots that are going on and in the injustice that was perpetrated. And so, um, God, in the midst of coronavirus, in the midst of all of these things, we want to thank you for not giving us the full measure of what we deserve. These things are terrible, but they're not even close to what we have earned from you. And so we thank you for your mercy in judgment. And Lord, we do pray for more mercy. We pray for um, for leadership. We pray for cooler heads to prevail, Lord. Um, but ultimately, we know that there are, there is no answer to these things outside of Jesus Christ. And so, um, we pray, Lord Jesus, that you that your kingdom would come. Lord, um, we ask that you would bless these next few moments as we spend time in your Word together. Would you build us up and would you ready us that we might be cut in the same cloth as this, our brother, Stephen? Would you, would you instruct us? Holy Spirit, would you come and exalt the name of Jesus among us? We ask it in his name. Amen. All right, turn with me in your Bibles to <clears throat> Acts chapter 7. Um, who can tell me the first person to walk on the moon? Neil Armstrong. Um, There are so many things about humanity that loves to be first. Like the first one to do something like that. The first one to go into outer space. Remember there was the the race between the Russians and the Americans just to get into outer space and then to walk on the moon. There's all of these things like in sports, the first one to do something that's never been done before. We love the idea of firsts. And... In front of us today is one of the most important firsts in the history of man. And it's the first Christian martyr. It's the first person to lay down their life following Christ. Acknowledging Him before men and saying, Come what may, Christ is Lord. Um, Stephen is the very first martyr. Um, We get to to see how it came about that he became the first martyr. before we before we dig into this text, let me um, let me ask you: Do you know um, originally before the word martyr came, we we come to you, we use it as um, a description of people who die for their faith in really anything, but particularly in the Christian faith. Um, the the word for martyr in Greek means witness. It just means to bear witness. And so Jesus said at the beginning of the book of Acts, "You will be my witnesses, my martyrs." Now. None of them were thinking at the time, you will be those who die for me, necessarily. They were thinking, oh, we're going to be the ones that tell everybody that Jesus is risen. And the name morphed into something else because so many Christians were martyred, would bear witness and therefore lay down their lives for uh, faithfulness to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the word witness is, is 
is the word where we get our word for martyr. So such is the importance of our bearing witness to the resurrection of Jesus. Now, as we observe these things, what I want you to do is I want you to watch. It's used twice in this text, the word witness, the word martyr. It's used twice here. And I want you to, uh, I want you to see, it, uh, see it when it comes. So we're going we're gonna to dig into these things. Let me give you a little bit of reminder as to the context. So Stephen has been arrested and he's been accused of blaspheming against Moses and against God and against the holy place, the, the temple, and the law. And so in his sermon, he started off with Abraham, and then he moved to Joseph, and then he moved to Moses, showing how um, all of these great heroes of the Israelite faith, uh, how Israel responded to them. Israel has a habit of rejecting the men God sends to them to save them. That's his point. He's going to do one last thing. If you want to write atop of uh, verse 44, the last straw. This is the last thing that, that Stephen is going to point out to them that's going to cause them to uh, gnash their teeth and stop their ears and run at him to murder. Okay, It's this last thing, and he turns his focus on the temple. Okay, So it's the last idol that he's going to take away from them that's going to send them over the edge. Okay, So watch this in verse 44. He says, Our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. There's your word. The tent of martyrdom in the wilderness. The tent of witness. That God was witnessing to them of His presence, of His love, of His word, of His use of Moses, of His raising up Moses as ruler and redeemer, as a lawgiver. Stephen says, our fathers had the tent, they had a martyr, they had a witness in the wilderness. Now, pop quiz, what we learned last week, if you look up uh, in verse 42, uh, you'll find an answer to this question. Did... Their fathers having the tent of witness do them any good in the wilderness. Listen to what he says in verse 42. But God turned away and gave them over to worship the host of heaven as it is written in the book of the prophets. Did you bring to me slain beasts and sacrifices during the 40 years in the wilderness, O house of Israel? So Stephen is pointing out to them that... Uh, Abraham didn't do them any good. Joseph didn't do them any good. Moses didn't do them any good. And now the temple is not going to do them any good. It's not going to cause them to eradicate the idolatry that's rampant with them. They were in the wilderness sacrificing to Moloch and to Rephon. Stephen says, during that time, our fathers had the tent of witness in the wilderness. This group of Jewish men have another tent of witness, another martyr, another witness, bearing witness to the reality of who God is and what he has said and how he is acting to redeem his people and it's not going to benefit them either the tabernacle did not eradicate the idolatry in the wilderness uh, he's also going to say something else about the tabernacle that's really going to um, bother them he says they had the tent of witness in the wilderness just as he who spoke to Moses directed him to make it according to the pattern that he had seen um this is, a, uh, this is something you, uh, that is mentioned in several different books throughout the Bible that when Moses went up on the mountain, it's not like God just said, hey, I want you to do, I want you to build a tabernacle sort of this way. I'll just give you some ideas about how you can put it together. He showed him a heavenly reality. He showed him what's actually going on in heaven and said, build the tabernacle according to pattern. Okay, this is, you find this in the book of Hebrews, you find this in the book of Exodus, where when Moses received information about how to build a tabernacle, 
He was to build it according to the pattern that he had seen. So, the tabernacle that they so loved was not substance, it was shadow. It was something that referred to something else, namely Christ and His kingdom. So, this thing that they boasted in, this tabernacle, it didn't eradicate idolatry. The tabernacle wasn't substance. It was according to a higher heavenly pattern. The tabernacle was replaced by something greater, he tells him. Look in verse 45. Our fathers in turn brought it in with Joshua. So you get it from Moses? You bring it into the land under Joshua when they dispossessed the nations that God drove out before our fathers? And so it was until the days of David. So think about that. If you know your Bible, um, how long a period of time does the book of Judges cover? Does anybody know? I don't know. But is it 10 years or is it hundreds of years? It's hundreds. It's centuries of time where they don't have the temple, they have the tabernacle, and then God raises up a man named David, the Savior of Israel, to replace it with something better, the temple. And so Stephen is saying, look, it happened in our history, and you don't fault David for replacing a shadow with something greater, so you shouldn't fault Christ for being that greater thing and replacing all of the shadows. That's the, that's the main idea. They, uh, David, so it was until the days of David. So for centuries they worshipped in the tabernacle. But David, who found favor in the sight of God and asked to find a dwelling place for the God of Jacob, but it was Solomon who built a house for him. <clears throat> Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. So he tells them about their tabernacle, that it didn't eradicate idolatry, that it wasn't the substance, it was a shadow that it was replaced by something better centuries after it came into being. And the last thing he's going to tell him about the tabernacle is that it wasn't ever what it was purported to be. It wasn't ever the greatness that they thought it was supposed to be. Listen to what God says, not just about the tabernacle, but about the temple that Solomon builds. Look in verse 48. Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet says. Heaven is my throne. Now, Think about this. Who is speaking? This is Isaiah 66. I'll show it to you in a second. But who is speaking? Heaven is my throne. Is that Isaiah speaking? Or is that God speaking through Isaiah? It's the voice of the Lord. He says, heaven is my throne. Earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hands make all of these things? So do you see his his point there? Uh, Stephen is showing them that this... um, their original accusation that he's speaking against this holy place, he's speaking against the temple. He's showing them that the temple never was what it was intended to be. Will you keep your finger here and turn with me to Isaiah chapter 66, the very end of the book of Isaiah. I want you to see the context of this quotation and see if it rings uh, rings any bells. Isaiah 66, verse 1. This is, uh, this is what Stephen quotes to this group of men about the temple, about the tabernacle. He says, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? All these things my hand has made. And so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. The idea is God is saying, I didn't receive anything from you. I am always giver. You are always receiver. Now watch this. But this is the one to whom I will look, not the one that builds me a tabernacle, 
not the one that builds me a temple. This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. That's, Steve, that's the context of Stephen's quotation of that verse. Because all throughout history, the history of Israel, they were boasting in the things that they could do for God, boasting in the works of their own hands. Meanwhile, what God wanted from them is to be humble, to be contrite in spirit, and to tremble at His Word. Most importantly, when His Word became flesh and dwelled among them. And they didn't tremble, they disregarded Him. Okay, So, He's telling them that this, this great thing that they boast in is not what it was always purported to be. Now, this is like, this is like, um, as a Cowboys fan, some historian digging up records that shows that uh, Roger Staubach was a cheater, right? Or, or, or that like, um, yeah, George Washington was a crook. Or Harriet Tubman was actually releasing the slaves so that she could have her own plantation in the north. It would be something so radically um, jarring as we look back on something that we, on all of our heroes, on all of the things that we love, and to have them, to have them communicated to us in such a way uh, to show their imperfections, right? To show the way it actually was. Um, this is what Stephen does for them. He looks at all of their great heroes. He looks at Abraham. He looks at Joseph. He looks at Moses. He looks at the tabernacle, David, Joshua. And he says, look, just read your Bible. Um, some of you guys remember, if you grew up in church or grew up anything like uh, I did, I remember reading the scriptures and coming across things where I'm, I'm asking like, wait, I thought Noah was the hero of the story, and here he is drunk and naked, and his kids end up cursed. His grandkids end up cursed. That does not sound heroic to me. And the way I was taught to read the scriptures is to just glance over those things and to give them a pass. The reality is those things are demonstrating to us that there is hope found in no one but Jesus Christ. He is the one dragon slayer. He is the one hero of the story. Everybody else that's the greatest that men can do are wonderfully flawed. And that's what Stephen points out to them. Now, <clears throat> so he that's the last straw, but then he's going to transition from preaching to meddling. I love this. I heard this saying a long time ago that <clears throat> um, people will get on to preachers. They'll say, you've gone from preaching to meddling. So you're, you're teaching the text and then you like like try and directly apply to us and get all in our business and stuff like that. Well, Stephen is going to do that. We've been looking at the Old Testament and he's telling them things they don't want to hear and showing them things they don't want to see. And now he's going to go from preaching to meddling. Watch this. You stiff-necked people. Have I ever called you names, beloved? Well, I haven't had to. So, and uh, hope, uh, hope I don't have to, but... He calls them stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in hearts. Very interesting. The word stiff-necked. Six times the children of Israel are called stiff-necked in the scriptures. Six times. It's like, a, it's like an endearing pet name that God has for his people. Okay? You stiff-necked people. Three times by Yahweh, once by Moses, once by Hezekiah, and now by Stephen. Um, you always uh, remember, I remember so growing up, my, everybody called me Willie or they called me the Beast because I had a terrible temper. Um, but I knew I had really stepped in it when I heard my full William Moore Martin. That's when it was the, the sky was about to fall. They're hearing, they're being called 
um, stiff-necked people. Now, the three times that Yahweh calls his people stiff-necked is during the time when they made the golden, the golden calf. When Moses is up on the mountain receiving the, the law of God for the people of God, and they're saying, we don't know what's become of him. We're going to make our own gods. We're going to boast in the work of our own hands. That's when God says, you are a stiff-necked people. And if I go among you, I'm going to kill you because I'm holy and you're rebellious. So Stephen puts them right back into a context that they do not want to be reminded of. Do you like to be reminded of your greatest sin, your greatest shame? Me neither. He says, you're a stiff-necked people and you're uncircumcised in heart. Now that's fascinating. They knew circumcision. Every man that he is addressing right now in his audience has been circumcised physically. And he is saying, you lack real circumcision. You are uncircumcised in heart. This is, I believe, uh, somebody check me on this. I think it's Deuteronomy 32, where Moses is talking about, uh, before they go into the land, he's giving them the law, and he says, you are not going to keep this. And God is going to drive you out of the land. And from a far country, he's going to grant you repentance, and you're going to turn and call on the Lord, and he's going to hear you, and he's going to bring you back to this land, and he will circumcise your heart. He will do something that's as yet undone to circumcise your heart. You need the internal work of the Holy Spirit. Speaking of the Holy Spirit, they're stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, and you always resist the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is, if you remember, when Jesus was doing miracles in his life, and they said, you cast out demons by the hand of Beelzebub, the Lord of the flies, Satan. That's the context in which Jesus talks about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can speak against the Son and it can be pardoned you, but when the Holy Spirit is drawing you to, to faith in Christ and you resist Him, there is no forgiveness there because you are refusing to believe in the One in whom you can have mercy. You are always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Amazing statement. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. So all of the prophets before announcing beforehand the coming of Christ, your fathers persecuted them and killed them. And now that he came, you did exactly what they wanted you to do. You murdered him. You betrayed him and you murdered him. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. They told Moses, you go to God. You hear from Him, and whatever you say, we will do. Did they do it? No, they did not. No, they did not. And so Stephen points this out too. That he goes from preaching to meddling. We want distance from our sin. Stephen describes them by their sin. You are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart, always resisting the Holy Spirit. You persecute the prophets. You killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one. Whom you, be, you, whom you betrayed and murdered. You received the law as delivered by angels, but you did not keep it. Can I tell you something, beloved? Um, this, this came up uh, a, a couple of Sundays ago when we met outside um, as to our identity, what sin has to say over us. If you are in Christ, your sin does not define you. But if you are outside of Christ, your sin absolutely defines you. If you're outside of Christ and you've murdered, you are a murderer. If you're outside of Christ and you are a, a blasphemer or a resister or a thief or an adulterer, those sins do define you. The only way that you can be pardoned from your sin is by faith 
in this Savior that they are rejecting. So Stephen points that out to him. Um, he's going to show them, well, I want to show you, rather, the consequences of Stephen's action. We are a, uh, a people who take far too much thought on what something is going to mean. Should I do this or that? A lot of times we won't start with, is it right or is it wrong? We'll start with, what happens if I do that? What happens if I tell this person the truth? What happens if I do this thing or don't do this thing? We always want to know about the outcome, about the consequences of things. And so often, the right thing to do goes undone because our eyes are on the consequences and not on what should happen. Is this making sense? I love that Stephen, knowing exactly the danger that he is in, he pulls no punches. He holds nothing back to them. He doesn't just sort of stay in the sky-high biblical exposition and just hope that people pick it up. He goes right to the jugular. And now he's going to suffer the consequences. At some point, the plane must be landed. Feathers must be ruffled. And Stephen does just that. Watch in verse 54. Now, when they heard these things, they were enraged. You could put in there, they were offended. How dare you say such things to me? They were enraged. And they ground their teeth at him. Oh, can I tell you something? When somebody is so angry as to grind their teeth, we're not talking about normal anger. These people are about to pick up stones and hurl them at the head of a man. They are very, very angry. What that indicates... Uh, you guys have observed this. I've observed this. We're seeing it in our, in our culture right now. Like When an idol is challenged, when something that we have boasted in is challenged, is being brought low, like Stephen is doing for these men, uh, it is when an idol is affronted or assaulted that the worshipers of said idol will grind their teeth and go to battle. Because they have to, they have to save their own God. They have to save the God of their own system. Okay? This is what we're seeing with all of the anger and all of the animosity that's going on in our culture that uh, idols are being torn down. And so you see the grinding of teeth. Um, It's really a sweet, sweet thing for us to not be the saviors of our God. That God doesn't need you to save Him. That He doesn't need you. uh, I think it's Isaiah 52 where He talks about um, those who worship idols, when their cities get taken over, they have to rescue their own idols because you can't let your God go into exile. So you've got to put him on your back and you've got to carry him, but he's made of metal and so he gets heavy and the beasts groan and they stumble as you try to save your own God. And God says, I am he who has borne you up from, from old age. I carry you. You don't carry me. So it's a great thing that we don't have to carry our own God. These are idolaters who have had their idolatry challenged. Now their teeth are grinding at him. But look at the difference with Stephen. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heaven, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. I love that Stephen has no time and no desire to think about how this is going to come up. What would you say to me if I looked up and go, oh, I see heaven, the heavens opening, I see Jesus standing. You would say, you are out of your cotton-picking mind. 
Stephen does not care. He is witnessing to the resurrection of Christ and he's witnessing to the things that God is showing him in the moment. He witnesses to Christ. I see. Now, did you see a word that was repeated twice there? Let me read it to you again and tell me the word. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. Psalm 110, the most oft-quoted psalm in the whole Old Testament. You are my son, uh, you're my son uh, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. It's quoted all over the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, and Luke talk about Jesus being seated at the right hand of the majesty on high. Ephesians 1, he has raised him up and seated him at the right hand. Colossians 3, Hebrews 8, Hebrews 12, Revelation 14. It is a mega theme of the Bible. It's a mega theme of what we quote every Sunday when we get together. And an elder says, Christian, what do you believe? Uh, that he ascended into heaven where he sits at the right hand of the majesty on high. Mega theme, Jesus ascended and is seated. There's no more work for him to do. He's not like the high priest in, in Hebrews having to go into the holy place. The high priest in the shadow tabernacle has to go in, but there's no seat in there because there's, no, there's always work to be done. Jesus does a once-for-all sacrifice, ascends into the real tabernacle, the real heavenly uh, temple, and he sits down because there's no, no more work to do. His atonement has been complete. This, brothers and sisters, is the one time in the New Testament that the resurrected Jesus Christ is shown as standing. It is him standing in honor of the first Christian martyr, the first one to die for faithfulness to him. That's fantastic. Have you ever seen um, when, when somebody toasts another person and honors them for a job well done or some sort of thing and a whole group of people raise a glass and they stand in honor? That is powerful. Now, let me ask you something. Could you think of anything, any greater reward, any amount of cash, any amount of, um, of affirmation among people that you care about? Can you think of any higher honor than to see the Son of God stand in your honor before you lay it down for Him? That is astounding. That is astounding. He, like Moses embraces the reproach of Christ and considers the reproach of Christ, considers suffering for Christ greater wealth than all that the Egyptians had to offer, than all of the world has to offer. I defy you to come up with a higher wealth, a greater glory, or a sweeter pleasure than to be honored by Christ. If you are not living your life to hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, you do not know what pleasure is. You do not know what you were made for. To, to have Christ your Savior, glory in you. No higher pleasure. Nobody else sees this honoring. Uh, would you, could you, would you lay it down for Christ? Uh, I fancy that if you saw that, you could. That if you saw him rise, standing, you would. Now, last thing I want to show you is the imitation of Christ. See if this sounds familiar. 
see the Son of God standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice and they stopped their ears. What a glorious parable of what's actually going on as they hear of the truthfulness of the claims of Christ and they're stopping their ears, resisting the Holy Spirit. Now they stop their ears once again. They rushed together at him. They cast him out of the city and stoned him. And the witnesses, see our word again? The martyrs, those looking on at the first martyr, the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. More on that in a moment. And as they were stoning Stephen, he called out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Does that sound familiar? Father, into your hands, commend my spirit. And falling to his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Does that sound familiar to you? It's sounding very familiar to me. Father, forgive them. Finish it. They know not what they do. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, is one of the greatest imitators of Christ. As his last dying breath, he intercedes for his accusers. When he had said this, he fell asleep, awaiting the resurrection. How fitting that the first witness was such an imitation of Christ who was full of grace and truth. Truth that enraged and grace that prayed for persecutors. May we court both aspects of this character of Christ. Um, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, we... Um, none of us want to be stoned. Um... None of us want to be rejected by our peers. And none of us want to be uh, vilified and ostracized and cast out. Um, but Lord, if you put the reverse of all of that, if you put long life, great pleasure, perfect health, popular among all men, everything that this world could ever offer, behind door number one and behind door number two you put the pleasure of Christ as he looks upon us we would take door number two every last time Jesus would you be pleased with us would you be pleased thank you Lord for laying down your life as a witness to the righteousness of your father that he would be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord, for laying down your life in love for us. Thank you for proving a redeemer, a ruler. Thank you for proving an example. Would you give us the courage to follow you? We ask it in your name. Amen. I believe the great gift from this text to us this morning is the presence of Saul. Let me read this to you again. And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who became the Apostle Paul. What atrocities did you commit this week? I rose this morning with the overwhelming sense of negligence in everything that matters. 
Have I loved the Lord with everything I have this week? Have my eyes of concern looked beyond myself to my neighbor for even a moment? Am I fit to preach? Am I fit to take communion with the redeemed of the Lord? And the witnesses laid down their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul, who wrote later in his life, The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me, as the foremost sinner, Jesus Christ might display His perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in Him for eternal life. How many of you guys have killed Christians? Brothers and sisters, we do not merit this table by our own ability to perform the greatest commandments upon which hang the entire law. It is not our obedience, but His mercy that enable us to be counted worthy of this table. I don't know what your week was like, but I do know that those who are in Christ have not done a single thing to undo His work on our behalf. So come to this table believing Christ for your needs. Believe He is all you need and that the only person you need. Believe that He has welcomed you. Believe that He desires you to come. Believe and come to Him. Come, welcome to Jesus Christ. And pray for us. Father God, what you have done is much more important than what we have done. Who Christ is for us is much more significant than who we have been for ourselves. And so we do not come to this table in our own name. But we come in the name of Jesus Christ who was crucified and raised for sinners like us. So Holy Spirit, would you, would you come? Would you enable us to come in faith, eating and drinking, believing in the broken body of Christ for us, believing in His shed blood for us? Would you come? Would you minister to us as we celebrate together in remembrance of Him? We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.